I'm your host, Stephanie Hoover, and today we are having the pleasure of speaking with Crystal Weatherly. Crystal, can you tell me a little bit about your story? Yes, um, I'm in recovery. I have been in recovery um, starting with six years ago, also five, five years ago, and I've been completely clean for four years. What does that mean? So, six years ago, I was on methamphetamines, and I surrendered that addiction to meth, and then a year later, I surrendered my addiction to alcohol and cigarettes, and then again, the next year, which would have been four years ago, I surrendered my addiction to marijuana. So, I've been completely sober for five years and completely clean for four. But my, my recovery actually started, my recovery journey actually started six years ago with the first addiction that I really struggled with, which was to methamphetamines. I heard you just say that you surrendered. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? And what does that mean to you when you say you surrendered? So for me, my faith plays the biggest role in my recovery and surrendering to me is turning over something. It's uh, basically just giving a desire that I had to please my flesh over to the Lord. That was my surrender. Okay. So we've all heard that recovery comes in a thousand different forms. So did you go through any type of treatment with your recovery? No, not any formal treatment. Everything in my journey was primarily through my faith. I did have some components to it that are similar to what other people would experience if they went through a treatment program. However, mine was by myself, really. Um, I, I secluded myself, so to speak, for a year at home. I deleted all my contacts that were people that I used to use drugs with or people that I used to buy drugs from. And for a whole year, I pretty much just stayed at my house. I did go to church when we had services. I went to the grocery store, but for the most part, I really didn't go anywhere else. Um, I, I just kind of isolated myself for that year, which in a way was sort of like being in a, in a treatment. But my focus was primarily on studying the Bible and growing my faith and just creating a whole new way of life without the use of drugs and alcohol. How long were you in active addiction? I began using nicotine at 12 years old. So I would say 30 years if you count that. I, I began using alcohol at 13. I began using speed at 16, cocaine at 19, and I had a break for about 14 years during the time that I was married to my first husband, but after our marriage, well, I, actually, I was using alcohol, but as far as any kind of hard drugs, I didn't, I didn't use during that 14-year period. However, I was drinking heavily during that time, so really, I didn't have a break from my addiction. It was just transferred mainly to alcohol, but when our marriage fell apart, then the use of illegal drugs started back. So I would say 
if you started from my first real addiction, which was nicotine, 30 years. What triggered, was it the demise or the failing of the marriage? Or was there something that triggered the additional use of methamphetamines? The methamphetamine use did not start until 2012. And that was right after my youngest son died. And he tragically drowned. And about a month after that, my other children were taken and placed in um, kinship placement through our DSS locally. And I was so depressed. I didn't know how to function. I didn't know how to cope. And so I stayed in bed basically for three weeks after my children were removed from my custody. And I had a family member that came to the house after I had been in bed for three weeks and said, here, I've got something that'll get you up and moving. And he cut me out a line of meth and I snorted that line of meth and that began a three-year intense addiction to meth. So I know you pretty well and I know the loss of your child um, we kind of can relate to that. Tell me a little bit about him. About Carson? Mm-hmm. So Carson was a surprise. Um, well, as were all of my children. Yeah. <laughs> they were all surprises. But my third son, Carson was the fourth. My third son was in kindergarten when I found out that I was pregnant with Carson. So it was much later than all of my other children. There were 12 years between my oldest and Carson. So definitely a surprise also because um, we were actually, my, my first husband and I were in the process of getting separated when I found out that I was pregnant, which really finding out that I was pregnant with him sort of made us more, um, not sure what the word I'm looking for, but we decided to give it another try, the marriage another try, because of the pregnancy. And so he was born in June of 2009. And by, I would say, the following year, 2010, was when we ended up, we, we separated. It just didn't work. We, we tried to make a go of it, and it didn't work. So, um, but he was such a sweet, such a sweet little boy. Um, definitely the apple of his brother's eyes and and all of our eyes. You know, obviously as the baby, he was doted on. So um, he just had a very special way about him. How did his death and the grief that you were feeling, how has that affected you? We've talked a little bit about that. Um, because we both understand grief, but how does that, how does his, the grief that you felt when he died, how does that affect you? So in the beginning, I tried to bury it. I tried not to cope with it. I did not deal with it. I specifically remember almost visualizing every time the thought of him would come to my mind, it was like I would just push it to the back. I could almost see myself literally taking that that memory or that thought and just physically 
moving it out of the way so that I wouldn't have to think about it or deal with it. And because of that, I think it really made me even more susceptible to a heavier addiction or as a coping mechanism to get in, to get into another addiction because I was not dealing with the pain. I was not dealing with the grief, the loss. And so my way of coping was to self-medicate in some way, whether it was the meth or alcohol or um, anything else. Um, men, whatever I could do that I thought would help me to not hurt or to feel better was how I dealt with it. And at least for those three years. So I really hid from it in a way. Um, I did have a therapist, but I wasn't being honest with her about my addiction. And so everything kind of became hidden, even even the grief. I really didn't share a whole lot. It eventually came out one night. I was at a bar and I don't know if it was the amount of alcohol that I had or what, but it just triggered um, just an explosion of all these feelings that I had been carrying around. And I just sort of broke down and um, didn't really do a good good job of handling it but of course you know I was pretty inebriated anyway so but you know as time has gone has, has gone on and I've been able to really focus on dealing with the feelings that come along with that I have started noticing the healing process taking place and I have a different perspective about it now too a much better perspective about his death and and how um, I actually had a pastor that, that experienced the same sort of tragedy with his son at drowning and um, his perspective has now become mine and it's helped me tremendously not just to deal with the grief but to look forward instead of backward because every day that goes by instead of seeing it looking back from one day further away from my son, I see it as one day closer to, to a reunion with him. Yeah. So you said that six years ago you surrendered everything. What well, actually, was your aha moment? What you're telling us that you did it alone, you isolated yourself, you focused on your recovery. What was your aha moment? So it was actually five years ago when I totally surrendered. Six years ago when I surrendered the methamphetamine, at that point in time, I really had no intention of following the Lord like I do now. I just needed help getting off of meth because everybody that I was around at that time was going to jail and um, or prison. And I knew that I was probably going to lose my children. I was probably going to be arrested. I was going to go to jail. I was making a lot of really bad choices. I had allowed some people to make meth in my house, and um, I knew that the police were watching me, and I, it was just a matter of time before I was going to be arrested and get in trouble. So I just, I just prayed um, because I had tried to quit 
using drugs. I had tried to quit using meth. Um, one time, I think the longest I had been able to quit was two months, and that was after my cousin had gotten arrested, and it scared me for two months. But then it was like I couldn't, I couldn't stay away from it. So I just prayed one day. I, I just, you know, asked God to deliver me from, from that addiction because I knew he had delivered other people. And I knew that he could do that for me. And he did. But at that point in time, I had no, no real intention of living for him, following him, giving him my life, surrendering my life, making him Lord of my life. It was just because I wanted help to get off a of meth. So it was another year before I really fully surrendered and my life, um, not just not just the drugs and the alcohol, but really surrendered my will, I guess is a better way of saying it. Um, and it was the realization that I could not do things in my life without messing them up. Everything I had done up to that point was, I just made a mess of it. And I was tired of being the one in control. And I knew that what he had planned for me was better than anything I could plan. And I wanted him to lead me. I wanted to follow him. I just, I, I really got to the point where it was sort of like, well, two things. The first was, I kind of, and this is going to sound crazy, but I, I kind of said, you know, I've been praying for you to change everybody else. I guess if you're not going to change them, then change me. <laughs> but the other thing that was really an aha moment for me was, I felt like the Lord was saying to me that I had a choice to make, that I could either continue to be a victim because I had used that mental victim mentality for many years based on experiences in childhood and experiences with abuse and um, with my first husband, my marriage falling apart, just so many different things I had used to make myself into a victim. Would you say that you made excuses? Yes, I would say that that would be accurate. Um, I did make excuses, but it, but they became good excuses to me to use drugs, to drink, um, it was sort of like I say I had a woe is me mentality. And it was like the Lord said, okay, Crystal, you've got a choice. You can continue to be a victim and you can continue life as you've been living it or you can be victorious in Jesus. But you can't have it both ways. You have to make a choice and only you can make that choice. And truthfully, I was miserable in the life that I had. And I didn't want to live that life anymore. I didn't want to be a victim. I wanted to be victorious. So we hear people say, choose recovery, choose recovery. In that first year, was it easy? No, it was not easy. What challenges did you face during that first year of recovery? Well, there was constantly the temptation to go back and use drugs. The very first year that after after surrendering the meth, I actually didn't really, I was still using alcohol and 
I ended up picking up a, an addiction to marijuana during that time. So I really just traded one addiction for another. I really wasn't in recovery that first year. Um, it's where I started my journey, but I really wasn't in, in recovery at that point in time. So I was just trading one for another, which is, I think, fairly common for a lot of people. When, when they put down one thing, they pick up something else. So um, it, it really wasn't the first year, I would say, was probably the after I surrendered, the second year was the year that I would say I was more in recovery. And that year was hard because, of course, there were temptations to want to go places that I had been going for quite a few years. So when I would start down the highway and this thought in my mind would come up like, well, why don't you go by the bar? You know, I had to make a conscious choice and decision not to go by there. Even if the thought was, just go see who's there. You know, I had to make that choice. No, I'm not going to go down there and see who's there. And I actually got off of social media for probably two and a half years, maybe a little longer. Because I didn't want to see what other people were doing that I had been hanging around because I didn't want that temptation to go back. I knew that I had to just disconnect myself. And I mean, I, the only thing I can relate that to, because I really had no training in recovery at all at that point, I was just walking it out, was the Lord leading me to do it because I had no no idea at that point in time the steps that, that I was taking were even remotely close to a recovery journey. So I'm guessing that during your many years of addiction that you, did you damage relationships with your family? Oh yeah, definitely. So when you chose recovery and you started down that path, what were the steps that you took to mend those relationships? One was to be honest about things and to ask for forgiveness. I know specifically, I remember one of the hardest things that I ever had to admit to was stealing a starter pistol from my grandma. And she had already passed away at the time, but I was getting ready one morning and it was like the Lord just put it on my heart that I needed to go tell my dad because this was his, his parents, my dad's parents. And um, evidently my grandpa had had a starter pistol that he kept in his storage building and I had found it when I was in the midst of my meth addiction. And I, instead of asking her for it, I just took it. And that morning I was getting ready. I just felt like the Lord said, you need to, you need to go admit to what you've done to your dad. And take him the pistol. And I did. I went over there and it was really difficult to say, I hope you'll forgive me. I took this from Grandma from the building. And here it is. I'm giving it to you. And I'm sorry for the choice that I made. How did he react? It really surprised me. Um, not that he was so forgiving, but the fact that he told me to keep it. He said, you know, thank you for coming and, and being honest with me. And I'm really proud of you. And you keep it. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Um, really blessed that he would... Um, that he would even say that he was proud of me because I had done so many things that I'm sure were disappointing. Not just that, but many other things too. Father's love, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, since your recovery, mm -hmm. what are some things that you're doing 
because we hear, oh, it's really important when you go into recovery to give back. So what are some of the things that you're doing to give back? Well, I'm just blessed to be able to work in my calling. I feel like God has called me into a ministry of helping people that struggle with substance use disorder. So what are you doing in that field? Well, I'm working as a peer support specialist and a recovery coach. And I'm able to go into the jail and work with people on their recovery journey. And I'm able to share my faith at the same time, which I've noticed that so many people share the same faith. Um, They're just, they're struggling like I was. So it's encouraging to me to be able to talk to other people and encourage them along the way to seek recovery as well. I've heard you have a quote Mm -hmm. and I've heard it many, many times. Mm -hmm. Um, If I hear it once a week, I probably hear it 10. What's the quote that you say almost every day? I take my heart to work. What does that mean to you? That means that I care about people and I want to help them. And I have a heart to help people. And I do probably get um, emotionally attached to people. It's hard not to because I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to deal with trauma. And... A lot of those were my reasons for using drugs and and using alcohol. And so I know that that is the same thing that a lot of other people are struggling with, too. So my heart just goes out to them. I I feel like I'm I'm so blessed to be able to share with other people my story and how God has turned my life around in hopes that they will have the same desire to, to have a different life because it is possible. So I have three questions for you. Okay. So the first question is, um, who are you most inspired by and why? Oh, wow. Um, Wow, that's a... I have a lot of people that inspire me. Goodness. Trying to pick one. You can pick more than one. Okay. So I would say one person that the pops in my head that inspires me is my sister in Christ and colleague, Amanda Kempen. Um, And why? You know, from the first time I, well, I really hadn't even met her at the time. I just had seen her on a live Facebook video and listened to her talk. And she just oozes Jesus. I mean, she's just so authentic and so real. And she just has such a go get them drive to help other people. And she's an encouragement to me. She's somebody that I can call when I have a problem. She's somebody that I can share my good times and, and good news with. She's somebody that I can turn to when I need accountability. And I know that she's genuine and that she's going to tell me the truth. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, you. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that um, 
I appreciate you helping me with some. Get me choked up. Um, some of the most difficult things that I've dealt with while I've been in recovery. It's been an honor. That I could not have done. It's been an honor. for your help. So thank you. You have inspired me as well. Another question. Mm -hmm. Is there a book that has changed your life? Oh, yes. Um, well, first of all, the Bible, obviously. I mean, without, without that, I, I wouldn't be who I am because my goal is to be like Jesus. I want people to see him when they look at me. But also another book is The Bondage Breakers. That book, I feel like the Lord led me to. It was my prayer that he would help me to be able to show people how to get free from not just addiction, but any kind of, any kind of bondage that a person could be in, whether it's from abuse or um, other traumas in their life, whatever it might be. Um, that book, if you have any kind of struggle with a bondage in your life, that book can set you, well, it, it's not the book that sets you free. Jesus is the one that sets you free, but it can walk you through the steps on how to get that freedom. So I would say that's that book has greatly impacted my life. I actually came up with another question too. Okay. Anyone listening to this podcast who is an active addiction or a fan, or they have a family member who is an active addiction, what is something that if you could tell them anything, what would that be? I would say that recovery is absolutely possible. That I was stuck in that addiction. And there is hope. There is a way out. And if you are in active addiction, that you would just understand your value. Because I know how how disheartening it is as someone in active addiction, how you feel worthless and how you feel like you don't have any value because of the lies that we believe about ourselves. And I would say that you have a purpose and just to keep, to keep going. Um, I would say if you have faith that to trust the Lord, um, if you'll hand over those things, those addictions, he can take that mess and give you a message out of it. And if you're a caregiver, then that's even, in my opinion, even harder, really, a lot of times than being the person in addiction. And, well, because the person who's in addiction is masking a lot of their pain with either alcohol or drugs or something. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's sort of like an escape from reality to use drugs or alcohol. And while it's, the, the pain is still there, there's, a, there's kind of a bandage that they're putting on it to, to make it feel bet, better temporarily. But a person who's a caregiver, there's really no way to, to cover that up. There's no way to mask it. I mean, it's something that you just have to deal with, and, and you, you can't just not feel it. You have to feel it, and there's no escape from it. So it's even harder, I think, as a caregiver than it is as a person in addiction um, because you're watching somebody that you care about and that you love hurt themselves, and 
you're basically, um, your hands are tied in order to help them. You, there's nothing you can do to change the situation. I mean, you can pray for them. That's the best thing you can do. But essentially, um, you're powerless to, to do anything to change it. They have to come to that realization themselves. And that's hard to watch. It's very hard to watch. If you could encourage them in some way, how would you do that? I would, I would just say you're not alone. Lean on the Lord. If you have, you know, if you're, if you have that kind of faith, and lean on the Lord, and and know that that you're not going through this alone. Even though I may, I know it's it's just heart wrenching, but I would recommend getting involved with 